Right. <laughs> Hi, okay, Defen episode 5. Hi, Hello, Ray. How are you? Right, I'm very well, yeah, very good. It's a good Sunday. And uh, uh, I, I'm actually, I don't know about you, but I'm, uh, I'm missing the, uh, the football, uh, the European Cup final to, to do this podcast and dedicate our time towards closure. Yeah. Rather than watching the uh, the French and Italians beat it out for Euro 2016. Okay, I'm from India. I don't I don't care about football. When it's, if it's not cricket, then we don't care. So <laughs> it doesn't matter. Okay. Well, Wales got knocked out, so the Brits don't care anymore <laughs> okay. either. Yeah, there was a Brexit. There was a big, heavy Brexit in the Euros. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. So uh, just a quickie uh, follow up. Apparently, we're still number one on uh, the Vegetarian Closure podcast rankings. Yeah. Uh, in fairness, there's only one in that ranking, but, but that's, we're still at the so top So this is that. the challenge to the vegetarians of the world who are into closure. So you can be, still beat us up. So let's see uh, if, if somebody does yeah. it. But we are, we're still the number one. So that's pretty good to know. We're, we're throwing it down. Yeah. We're throwing it and down. And we've been getting, yeah. getting pretty, pretty and, uh, good feedback, I think. Uh, also, we, we uh, have a new channel on Slack as well. So if you want to complain or let us know, uh, so, uh, yeah. just uh, find yeah. us on uh, Closure and Slack. And um, yeah, chat with us. And uh, if you have any ideas for the show, so, you know, we'd love to hear it. That'll be great. Um, so speaking of which, uh, we had some follow-up from Alex, right, Ray? Uh, yeah, from Alex yeah. Miller. Yeah, uh, after the last podcast, we were talking about uh, potentially being a bit more open and transparent about the process. And uh, Alex uh, said, actually, Alex offered to come on the show and talk a bit more about it as well. So I think we'll definitely queue that up. Um, so that's a great yeah. offer. Uh, and, and definitely we'll follow that up, I'm sure of it. Uh, he also recommended having a look at uh, Maria Geller's video from the last Closure Conj talking about um, a look behind the curtain of the Closure Script yep. compiler. And I've got to say, I, I hadn't watched it until he mentioned mm -hmm. it, but I watched it this week and uh, she did a great job, I've got to say. I'm, I'm very impressed. I mean, number one, I think she said she'd only been doing Closure for a few months, maybe six months or something, or even four months, before she started doing this work on the compiler, which is freaking yep. amazing in my opinion. Uh, so she's obviously smart, uh, but she's a great presenter as well. She really makes it uh, very easy to, to watch. She explains things very well, uh, and then she ends up talking a bit about how the uh, the, contribu the contribution process works as well, which is good yeah. to know. Um, I still think I still think there's more detail to be had from that. I still think that uh, that we can go into more detail with Alex about that kind of stuff. But I'll put the link to Maria's video in the show notes because I think she did an awesome yeah. job there. And um, uh, so, so some other news. Yeah. So Adrian? the news um, we. We are going to uh, Euroclosure and the Euroclosure this year is going to happen in Bratislava in Slovakia and the tickets are on sale. Did you buy your yes, ticket I did. actually? Did, I did you buy your ticket? So I don't think so because me and I'll be traveling with my wife as well. So we uh, both of us will be there for a week in Slovakia. And um, of course the Defen will be there, right? I think you got the early bird one, right? I got an early bird one, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I think I a single figure. Yeah, tickets, you know what? Yeah. I'm a vegetarian, so I don't really eat worms. So, you know, early bird gets the worm and I, I, I'm, I'm OK. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that's why I'm being a late bird. You know, I, I'm, I'm happy with the fruits and stuff. 
But um, yeah, so I think okay, it, it's going to okay. be a, a blast, I, I suppose. So uh, we'll be there and hopefully we'll catch us. Uh, maybe we'll do a special episode there if we can drag our uh, equipment there, uh, the whole uh, microphone. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. Well, I'm going to bring my son along, actually. I'm going to bring my, uh, my 16-year-old son. He just finished school uh, awesome. recently. And uh, I'm going to get him to be my uh, multimedia yeah. lackey. <laughs> Uh, he doesn't know that yet, but yeah, I'm, 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 at least I'm hoping he, he's definitely agreeing to travel okay. with us. Uh, he thinks it's just going to be a holiday, but you know, I'll let him know a bit later that he's actually going to have to work for it. Yeah. But so far, he just thinks it's a great end of school yeah, trip. Yeah. So okay. hopefully he won't listen to this podcast and find out there's a nasty surprise waiting for him. <laughs> Right. Anyway, yeah. Okay. So we'll definitely be there. Let's get yeah. on to the show. So uh, I know we, we promised we're going to look into... Um, um, asynchronous programming and stream thing, but uh, as you know, you know we are very flexible and agile, and uh, we are one of the most uh, awesome podcasts ever. So we decided we're going to make it even better. So what we did this time is we're going to discuss uh, Hoplon, and I have very uh, not not very, I mean very less knowledge of Hoplon. So I thought it would be better to. Of course, I, I know Ray has given a presentation in in Belgium meetup, and I hear that it's a roaring success with. Uh, um, half a <laughs> half a dozen people showing up. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> carefully, carefully, yeah. carefully selected crew. I think you're talking yeah. about here. Highly curated. Uh, yeah, yeah. Membership. It's it's like yeah, exactly. the elite of closure in yeah. Belgium. Yeah. Actually, to be honest, it was one of those things where I didn't know enough about it. So uh, we're going to do a little trick. Now, yeah, yeah. We? So we decided because um, instead of um, two um, less <laughs> intelligent people speaking about Hoplon, we, we decided we we're going to bring in the experts. So on that note, I'd like to welcome Mr. Misha Nishkin. Hello. Hey. hey. <laughs> Hello, Misha. Hello, world. How's it going? Pretty good. That's going welcome great. To yeah. Happy to be here. Yeah. So, um, all right. Good, good, good. We need, we need to tell you that we are the world's best are the uh, yeah obviously world's best podcast of uh, vegetarian closureians so welcome to the world's best vegetarian closureian podcast so are you into Our, vegetarian food actually you told me misha that your favorite food is a vegetarian food is Absolutely. that right yeah yeah i would i would never want to like participate in some cut rate vegetarian closure <laughs> situation <laughs> only the this, best that's, that's good to know exactly to this know. is the best one so <laughs> you're, you're on the right right podcast for that yeah, you can meet the challenge. Tarnish my reputation with substandard vegetarian <laughs> podcasts. Podcasts. Yeah, that's yeah. that's yeah, true. You wouldn't want, wouldn't want to know about those guys. Yeah. Thankfully, we haven't got a splitting uh, of that particular group yet. <laughs> Maybe I'll just edit this out actually because we're going fucking nowhere. <laughs> anyway, no, leave it in. Leave it in. Leave it in. All right, good. Misha, come on, let's talk about Hoplon. Misha, tell us just before we go there, Misha. I know uh, this whole Hoplon story started a bit before uh, your current uh, work. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about you and a bit about kind of like the Hoplon story, where it all came from? What was the origin story of this technology? Sure. Um, Alan Dipert and I have been friends for a long time. Uh, we met in the Army and, uh, yeah, we served together. And uh, later, and we both were like, we were not doing a computer type job. So we were the only kind of computer people 
there. So we, uh, we became friends, and later we were working together in like 2011, 2012, uh, at this place, The Fresh Diet, where we made food and sent it to people. Uh, it was like a 250,000 lines of PHP type of situation. And uh, so the, some of the things that they needed to do, like we just couldn't do it, and we decided to you know, make our own solution. And uh, yeah, we did. Did you have experience of closure before that, or was that something where you, you decided to, where you first learned it? Yeah, Alan actually demanded that I try closure. Like, I was, I was doing like some stuff with Scheme at the time. Ah, okay. And uh, I remember he, he was like, Scala, you should look at it. It has Reduce, it's awesome. And so I like got the book, and like on a page 120, they were still introducing new syntax. And I was like, <laughs> don't ever talk to me again about any of this nonsense. And the next thing was closure. And I was like, oh, look at all that syntax. I don't know, dude. But it turned out to be the best thing ever. So, so yeah, I, I've been doing closure for <laughs> It hasn't got that much syntax, does it? No, but I mean, compared to Scheme. Just, 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 just a moment here, you know, it's just a, a competitor Scheme, yeah. But uh, it depends on which, which version of Scheme you're talking about, because that's still got, yeah, OK. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm not complaining. Closure's great. And, uh, you know, it, it's improved the, the quality of my life. Like. The, my actual day-to-day -day living is actually way better because Clojure exists because most of my time is spent programming and Clojure is way better. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a lot more, you've got a lot more options, haven't you, with uh, Clojure than you had with Scheme in terms of libraries and all those kind of things. Yeah, and just the engineering is like, we were talking, Alan and I were talking about, uh, you know, like reference types, comparing to ML and stuff, and just like the engineering of how reference types work that, you know, you have this, Whatever, you, you have a, a defined semantic for updating a mutable thing and that you could watch it if it's a mutable thing. It's amazing engineering, like stuff like that is all throughout Clojure and like, I learned a ton just looking at Clojure.core, like about computing. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the whole STM thing is just phenomenal, isn't it? Okay, let's, um, yeah, let's uh, let's get into the topic of the hand. So at the hand, so we have this. I know that you you guys are working really hard with um, uh, different kinds of libraries that you're releasing. I know you're busy with Boot and and a lot of amazing things that you guys are building. But for this podcast, we'd uh, we'd like to discuss something more about um, the the Hoplon framework and 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 the whole uh, libraries behind it. So um, you know you know this this trio of uh, trilogy, not not a trilogy, but the three three holy trinity of Hoplon. I would say, like Hoplon, Jarlin, and Castra. Yeah, the, the pillars. Ooh, yeah, three yeah, pillars. Three pillars. So let, let's talk about Hoplon. So where did Hoplon come from, and and what is the what is the uh, fundamental uh, aspect behind it? So I know that there are lots of web frameworks out there, uh, starting from jQuery and history. You know, you did a lot of DOM-related things. So can you give us some some quick overview of Hoplon? What is that? Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, maybe like a, a tiny little intro to like my, our state of mind. Alan and I both like, um, throughout, throughout my whole career up until I discovered Clojure, um, I, would, I would make these applications and every time it would get to a certain point, like usually I would, re I would release the thing, the first iteration of it to like the stakeholders and whatnot, and they would look at it and make changes, and as soon as their changes started coming in, things would start unraveling architecture-wise. Like you add you know, magical arguments to your functions, like special case one, true or false, you know, that kind of stuff. And pretty soon, like you're at paralysis mode, which is where we were at with this PHP application. 
where making any change is like this death-defying thing. And, but with Clojure um, and with Lisp in, in general, like I, f I feel like we're actually solving problems. Like Javelin, we haven't updated it in years now. Like we haven't needed to add any features to it. Like we just solved the problem and that's all we need and like that's it. And that I'd, ne I'd never experienced that before. And so when we discovered this, we were like, man, so we can, it makes sense to invest in making frameworks and things because we could just do it once and then we use it for the rest of our careers, right? To do stuff, to get yeah. other jobs done. And so like one thing we noticed at the Fresh Diet was that an inordinate amount of our time, like developer time was spent, you know, dicking around with the UI, you know, yeah. the getting the UI to work on something that's trivial, you know, like when you click this button, that other thing should disappear, but then this other form should show itself or whatever. And it was so hard to do it and spent, took so much time. We were like, it makes sense for us to make some kind of framework because we believe that it can actually be a solution that will not be like, you know, so. Yeah, PHP. <laughs> yeah, so. But PHP is on the service side. So I mean, on the, on the client side, you know, you have jQuery, so why would you want, I mean, okay, forget, <laughs> this is pre-React, isn't it? This is pre-Angular, pre-all Angular was around. So why why wouldn't, oh, was it around? Okay. So, okay, so why would you reject, it's maybe it's harsh to say why would you reject them, but why did you say, okay, well, Angular or jQuery or Ember or Backbone or all those little frameworks around what what was the what was your thinking to say well those guys don't fulfill what we need yeah the main things that we investigated first were angular knockout js was another another thing at the time oh yeah knockout um, yeah. and yeah. then we yeah. we made weird hybrids of them and one of them involved like making jekyll you know like generating static sites and then adding <laughs> knockout to it after right, they were right. loaded all kinds yeah. of crazy things and uh, but the problem with all of those was that we decided that we needed a program that ran in the client, which is something that's obvious to us today. Like, I think everybody kind of agrees on that, that like maintaining state in sessions and redirects with URLs and stuff like that is just not, you can't form abstractions there. Like that makes all your abstractions leak by necessity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you needed to have the things that make abstractions work are first class representations of things, meaning like that anything you have, you can make an anonymous version of it. So those are things that you can't do when you're storing stuff in sessions, you know what I mean? Like when you have to hydrate and deserialize and so on in order to build up the state for every request. So one of the, so we decided that we needed something that ran purely in the, in the client. And uh, we decided on a Lisp and we initially had our own crazy, HLisp was it's actually its own Lisp because ClojureScript didn't really exist. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty crazy <laughs> and not great. So thank God for Dave <laughs> Rich and closure script. Yeah. But, um, so you actually had it even before before closure script, in fact. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow, I didn't know it that. It was pretty pretty not great. But we had <laughs> f expressions and stuff. Like basically, we just like spent all our time like playing around in like you know yeah. 1950s <laughs> Lisp technology. <laughs> right. Okay. So you're writing any evaluators? Yeah, like that. yeah. It's, it's pretty sweet. Readers. Okay got paid to do yeah. it kind of um but yeah th so the <laughs> they didn't know but you got paid it, it's a it. nice thought experiment right yeah i mean it was an actual experiment too unfortunately but <laughs> yeah 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 that's true yeah so i think you should have left it at do you, do, you, do you think you should have left it at the thought level instead of implementing it or what were the insights that you got from doing this one apart from hey let's not do that again 
for making the Lisp? Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I think it was, I, we just learned a lot. I learned a lot about how Lisp works. You know, making making it and and then optimizing it and stuff, and you know, and also what we needed from Hoplon because it was basically implementing a lot of the Hoplon stuff um, in kind of. Behind the scenes, Hoplon uses jQuery, right, or does it? Well, any anything that that works on the web today needs to use some kind of DOM standardization interface. And uh, we picked jQuery just because, you know, it has like 75%, like 70% of all the websites in the world have jQuery running on them versus like for the Google Closure Library, it's like 0.0005%. Yeah, that's true. And so we started running into bugs there and I just had zero inclination or bandwidth for fixing like cross-browser bugs. And jQuery is 34K, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so that... Well, so I guess you know that most people have already got jQuery as well on their, on their PC or their phone or whatever, because if you see the init, everyone's got it from their other website visits. Yeah, I mean, also, like, another thing that's important, I guess, to note is that, like, our interest is in making business applications. You know, mm. so we want to make, like, what I want to be able to do is concentrate on the functionality of the back end and have the front end be as straightforward and simple as possible. And I just want to make business at like interfaces for applications that people are making money with. So a lot of the things that you would get from like, like we're not implementing, you know, Instagram, you know, or things like that, or like Twitter, like show somebody some, some tweets. Like we're, we're implementing workflows and things like that, which is like an important consideration because stuff like load time, loading an extra 34K of stuff is not a problem for these people because, you know, like Gmail, you keep it open for a long time. Yeah. So I remember, I mean, before the show, you were discussing about web components, and, and you mentioned that one of the things that you played with before was the web fui thing, right? So can, can, can you give us some idea about um, how, um, how you, what your opinion on the web components and how it fits into Hoplon and the web fui, of course? I mean, web fui is a different, is a kind of different thing. It's, it's sort of like the, you know, the pre-react react. Yeah. Um, it wasn't so much about, it didn't have like such a, well, maybe I just didn't know, but I didn't see like a very pervasive component story. He was more interested in, you know, sort of the react, you know, the, the virtual DOM experimentation, um, which was super cool. I remember seeing it at the conj and, you know, thinking, good job, dude. Very nice. Um, but like the, the main thing with Hoplon, the thing that we really wanted to accomplish is to have a very, very strong component story so that you can make building blocks. So like the way I see a user interface um, for a business application especially is you have a, um, you know, you make a toolkit of components and then you assemble those into an application. You know, where you're, the application itself is just an assembly, kind of like, you know, like what we did with boot. When you make a boot script, you're just assembling tasks that are, you know, decoupled from each other. Yeah. You assemble them into a thing. Yeah, but this has been done done multiple times, right? I mean, people have been trying to achieve this holy grail of getting web components, right? I mean, back in the days with the Flash RIA things, and then, uh, of course, Java saying, yes, you can build the whole applet stuff, and then you don't need to worry about the DOM at all. And the, the DOM became like a very least common denominator. So it, it, it's, it's very difficult to get components that, that people can share easily with each other. 
So what do you think about that? Yeah, so what we, the reason why we, we arrived at Hoplon is because we, we determined, in our opinion, that the, the issue with all those attempts were that they make, you know, they make a fake DOM. So you're not actually operating on DOM elements themselves. And so there's this impotence that, that causes your abstractions to start to leak. You have to start you know, making all kinds of special case arguments and stuff. Yeah. And so what we wanted to do was take, uh, like, so we looked at HTML, and HTML is a programming language already. It's just a very poor one. It doesn't have any means of abstraction, you know? So, but like, you know, it does get parsed, you know, and it gets parsed yeah. into an abstract syntax tree, which then gets evaluated, which becomes a document object model, you know, where things become objects. And uh, so we realized that with Clojure, all we needed to do was add, you know, an invocable, add IFN implementation to make DOM elements themselves invocable, and we could achieve the goals of web components in a lot of ways. Well, everyone says, don't they, that like XML is a kind of poor man's yeah. lisp. And uh, so HTML is a form of XML. So, so yeah, you're right. When you squint, it makes sense that you can, you can take that, uh, each of the DOM elements and essentially treat them as an S expression. I think I would say it's, it's more like a sadomasochistic version of lisp. I mean, it's not actually a poor man's lisp. You know? <laughs> The the, the the sharp <laughs> angle, the just sharp brackets actually they, they pierce into your eyes. So, you know, on the other hand, at this other startup I was working at recently, that's that's bracketist. You, you do know that, don't you? Yeah, I was working at this other startup where we had to parse like tons of crazy XML soap stuff from like you know the travel, the OT OTA. There's yeah, like this yeah. travel thing, and it's like enormously enterprisey and everything. And so, like, I was working on this library that I, I called uh, XML SVU, <laughs> which was, yeah, making it invocable. It wasn't yeah, a yeah. complete success because I kind of ran out of steam. But <laughs> okay, okay. So um, Hoplon is essentially the UI uh, level thing um, that that used to build the front end. And th th there is this always a discussion about every time when people make a web framework, they they keep comparing that. Hey, we want to make it friendly to the designers so they can write HTML. You know, uh, so if you see most of the newer um, applications, they, they try as much as possible to, to, to make the front end very HTML-like. Uh, so how, how, what is the story in, in Hoplon for that? So designers can write uh, HTML or? Yeah, we, we started out with that because that was basically where we were at business-wise. In other words, the Fresh Diet, they needed a thing that they could put designers on and it needed to work well with them. So that was something that just fell out of the design of it. Like we could evaluate HTML. In other words, HTML can be transformed into X, S expressions. So we did that, but now we've kind of moved away from that to a more like you, an even more utilitarian view, which is that we don't need to have, like at the Fresh Diet, the marketing department had like a huge say in how things worked. And, but like at AdZerk say, we're dealing with, you know, it's like business to business. We're dealing with professionals. So utilitarian is the most important thing. So we're not really that interested in, you know, making everything ultimately pretty. Although Hoplon can still do it, you know, but like that's not like where we're kind of focusing ourselves. So you, you imagine that developers are mostly users or developers rather than designers, in other words. Right, like 
And so you're thinking like bootstrap tastic and, uh, you know, make the develop, enable the developers to make the most, uh, you know, straightforward UIs to get the data in and get it out and get it represented rather than the kind of uh, beautifully pixel perfect finessed uh, UIs that maybe iOS apps might yeah. dream of. Right. I mean, like, like at AdZerk for our application, um, we, we have a, an excellent designer who made us, uh, he based it on Bootstrap, but he could have done anything. Like, but he, he made us like a UI kit, and we just used that. And so he gave it to us as HTML, and we transformed it into components. And okay. So before, before we move on to the next, uh, next topic, I'd just like to ask you one question. So, so how independent is this? So can I use just Hoplon UI with, with any of the frameworks that I, that I can uh, play with, or, or is it very tied to the, the, three, the two other pillars, like Javelin and Castra? No, it's, it's, they're all just libraries. So, okay. um, yeah, you can just, like from any closure script application, you can just pull in the Hoplon dependency, require the namespace, and use it. Oh, okay, that's sweet. Okay, let's talk about Javelin then. Just before we move on to that, just one quick final question. Sure. <laughs> final questions more is uh, how well does it play with the uh, Bootstrap closure script stuff? Is it just all kind of just all drops in, or is there anything special? You mean like closure script and closure script? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's something I'm not. I'm, I'm definitely want to look into it because I'd really like to have eval for like the spreadsheet aspect it would be really nice. I just haven't had time to figure out like how macros exactly work in that environment, but yeah. I'm also curious, I don't know if you guys know, but I'm curious about could you compile closure script and closure script and then run it through the Google Closure compiler, like instead of using the the closure compile the closure compiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think right right. The, the clips thing is basically that, right? Uh, you write closure script and then it's going to compile using closure script. But I'm not sure whether whether it is using the Google closure compiler there. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe we need to look it up. But I'm sure I'm sure plenty of our audiences will be happy to let us know. <laughs> hey, you're wrong. Want to follow yeah. up then that one? Want yeah. to follow yeah. up? Yeah, that's yeah. definitely something I okay. plan on on experimenting with. So because I really do want to have like in in client access to eval too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to make it more dynamic and so you can embed Hoplon in other kind of environments. Yeah, okay, good. Okay, cool. I, I, I didn't know if there was going to be anything special required there to make that happen, but I guess not, but it will just be more about exploiting the capabilities that that environment offers. Yeah, we'd have to rewrite some macros to be cross-platform, you know. Right, okay. So yeah. how, how difficult is it to get into Hoplon's code? So what do you think? I mean, if people want to contribute or people want to, what are the open-ended things that, that we can get into? Do you oh, think yeah, is, is, is there contributing more components or how, how, what is the entry point? Um, well, so there's, there's a few projects going on. Uh, one of them that's, that's really interesting is uh, Sky Jumblerg on, on Slack. Uh, he's making a really interesting UI component library on, on top of Hoplon, which is, uh, Really, like what we want. That was our goal: is to to make to end up with these kinds of things. So uh, that's had like a bunch of activity. So there's a number of contributors and commits every day. It's still kind of like alpha, but um, but that's like yeah, that's totally what we want to achieve. So all kinds of things like that. Hoplon itself is really really simple. Yeah. So 
you know, we haven't, I mean, we're adding, we're making some changes now, getting ready for a new, a new major version. So we're deprecating some things and, but there's not really that much to it. So there's no real roadmap for it. You okay. know what I mean? Like, yeah, there are some problems that need to be solved. As you said, you know, you, you just made something that is going to last forever. So that is going to make you more productive over the period. So I think it's, it's pretty stable right now. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the other thing I was just going to ask you about, Michelle, just quickly, is all these other functions, like we mentioned jQuery and stuff like that. Uh, how does it play with like CSS frameworks or other JavaScript frameworks? Hoplon only uses jQuery for very, very small number of things, like specifically dealing with attributes, which we found was buggy in like Google Closure library, things like that. Um, because attributes, as we know, are not always at, are not always properties of the element. They need to be special cased for different, you know, user agents and so on. Uh, so that's the one place mm -hmm. that Hoplon Core uses it. And then Hoplon has a concept of custom attributes, which are like attributes that you can define how they behave as a multi-method. So every element, so you could have like a fade-in attribute. Right, that when you turn it to true, the element fades into visibility. Or if you set it to false, it fades out, right? And that can be, that attribute can be applied to any element. And so a lot of the default implementations, the default attributes that come with Hoplon are implemented using jQuery. But we're planning to separate that out into a separate namespace, so it'll be like, the jQuery dependency will be optional. Right, okay. So you you could potentially use other little frameworks like Zippo or something like yep. that. Yeah. But okay, so that's like in your core. But what about if I want to use, I don't know, some other like like let's say I want to use a CSS library like Less or something like that. Or or if I I know there are like CSS modules now um, that you can. You can bring in the JavaScript modules. How, how would we how would we do that in uh, in Hoplon? Uh, there's no Hoplon doesn't have anything to, to do with that. You can just use them, and most of the time you can just use jQuery plugins directly because you're dealing directly with the DOM. There's no complication of you know making it compatible with the DOM. Now what I mean is like let's say you've got a like a, a table called Foo, but that table, the name of that table is Foo inside of uh, a Hoplon page. Is that still called Foo as far as the CSS is concerned? The selectors can still use the name Foo? If you set the class, sure. Or the ID or whatever. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, they're just regular DOM elements. Hoplon doesn't. Okay, so it's not, it's not name mangling or anything like that. You don't have to, there's no special ceremony to introduce like all of these things on top of Hoplon, it's just, it just all plays, it's just all plain vanilla stuff. It, you, you don't do any mangling or name changing underneath nope, the covers. not at all, yeah. All right, okay. Yeah, that's, cool. that's one of the thing, you know, that's the thing that Hoplon does, it allows you to, to program with the actual DOM. So there's no magic or funny business going on at all. Right, right, right. Okay, so when when you look at it on the, on the browser tools and all these kind of things, it's just looking like straightforward DOM elements. Yep. Except for IE8, IE8 has like a weird, you'll see some weird things in IE8, but yeah, but it does actually work. We have tests and everything. So. You said you said business applications. So, you know, IE8 is like the standard <laughs> thing for probably, I don't know. <laughs> we, we have moved on. So we have moved on from IE8 luckily, yeah, at least in, in, in the work that I'm doing. 
I think most business applications have moved on from IE8 as well. And the business applications are all using more modern environments. It's actually, it's worse for consumer environments where, you know, the consumers out there are, you know, 20% of them or something or 15. And it's, it's, it's always diminishing year by year, but there's still probably 20% that uh, if you want to reach 100% of all users, you have to include IE8. Um, well, 97% plus. Anyway. Luckily, Adzerk doesn't care about IE8, so... <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got. But are you? If do you have, do you have a shim or something, or do you have some special code to deal with IE8? No, we just. Well, we wrote it. We special case some things. Um, right. But like, right, I guess. Right. So the our thinking is that if you're making something that works in IE8 and works in a modern browser, you're going to have your own special cases too. Yeah. So. True. Yeah. I mean, jQuery helps you as well. There, I guess. Yeah. 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 All right. Cool. Right, uh, so we're just gonna. So, anything else you want to talk about with Hoplon before we move on to the next pillar? No. No. Okay. Awesome. All right, that's good. Uh, so, the next one we wanted to talk about was still um, really kind of like the, let's say, the jazzy stuff in the Hoplon uh, ecosystem is this uh, Javelin. Uh, spreadsheet functional reactive programming uh, model that you have because uh, you know everyone's crazy for FRP on the client side now. No one knows what the fuck <laughs> it means, but everyone wants it, you know. Um, and especially since you know, and again, I don't think people know that React says hey, it's a, it's a one pure function of rendering, whatever that means. But I think people feel somehow that that FRP is the hotness. Obviously, Elm has helped to make that the hotness in San Francisco, but where are you coming from in terms of like FRP and spreadsheet models for, for Javelin? Because I know that's something that you're you're excited about in, in this framework. Yeah, we were, we've been like kind of fascinated with spreadsheets for a long time. And, uh, you know, we made applications with Angular and with Knockout. So we had some experience with like some observable type situations. And uh, then we just like went in and, uh, oh, we found this paper uh, for this, uh, this library called Flapjacks. So uh, I think yeah, it was yeah. a Microsoft research project. Yeah, I think that was very long time ago, right? It is, it's a Lisp thingy. Yeah. I remember I remember uh, subscribing to their mailing list. Yeah, that, that was pretty amazing, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they were they were yeah. like schemers and they wrote their JavaScript yeah. in a really weird schemey way, which is pretty yeah, awesome. That's true. <laughs> uh, like all their curly braces were like end up on the same line or something. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> So they were, they were really kind of uh, working on this principle that JavaScript is a form of scheme. Yes. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it, it didn't have enough uh, support, by the way. I think it was a long time ago, somewhere in the 10, 10, 15 years ago, maybe. Anyway, that's that's. I mean, the, the crucial thing that we got from that was uh, the dependency graph and how that the the concept of like glitch elimination. They call it glitches. And so like we had this thing that we were already working on called declarify.js or something like that, which allowed you to like make a spreadsheet basically, but using attributes declaratively, whatever, it's kind of confused. But what it did was it did dirty checking. So like in FRP, there's these two kind of competing things and one of them is dirty checking and the other one is like dependency graphs. And with dirty checking, that's very similar to like what React does is you evaluate everything and you detect what changes when it's time to make side effects. Right? And yeah. so like with a spreadsheet, what you might do is you might just evaluate every cell, every formula, you know, from left to right, top to bottom, and you keep doing it iteratively, like the way Clojure expands macros until it stops changing. 
and then you know you're there. Hmm. And uh, but this doesn't work very well, like when you're making an application, because like you might get the right values in the formulas, but a lot of times you need you need those values to schedule side effects, which are the thing that really matters. Like launching the nukes, you need to do that right. Yeah. And so what we would end up with is uh, we came up with like this test called the. I don't think there is a right way to launch the nukes. I mean. <laughs> Well, doing it only once is a start, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Like, yeah. <laughs> but but speak, speaking of the, the the whole spreadsheet model, so what is behind it? Because I, I know so Javelin is basically a closure script uh, library, right? So what do you use in, in behind? I mean, do you have an atom with watchers on, and how, how does how does it actually work? Yeah. So the atom with watchers, you end up with glitches, which is when things happen out of order and they, for, for a certain amount of time, have the wrong value, you know? Um, so the way we eliminated that was by making a new reference type. So in Javelin, cells are first-class objects, meaning you don't need any macros to work with them. So we okay. have a bunch of macros, but that's just, you know, syntax. The macros just expand to function calls. And um, so we made a new reference type, and enclosure reference type is, you know, a thing that has, like, some semantic for updating it. It's, it contains a mutable thing, but it itself is immutable, and you can watch it. And so we implemented that. And the, the unique property that Javelin cells have are that they um, respect the dependency graph. So if a cell depends, if a formula depends on cells, it will never update until all of the things, all of the cells that it knows about have already updated. So in effect, it's like storing all your stuff in one big atom. In other words, you get the same at atomic view of the world because any given part, the view of its world is that it's the last one to update. Okay. And, and so how about the local state? So I know that there is, um, when, when Ohm came in, you know, uh, we wanted to keep the entire application state in one atom. And there has been some discussion around how to keep the local state, like the form validations and these kind of things. Because then, then you're essentially um, putting everything onto the, onto the global application state where, where you want to have a temporary state. And that, that made the, the whole tree very unwieldy, especially if you have multiple forms. And so how, how does this work in Javelin then? Or, or in yeah, the Hoplon so, world? So with Hoplon, you have a real reference type. So you can make anonymous cells. You can, you know, all these things are, are possible. So you just use regular lists. So you use the scope mechanisms that are, that are the, fu the foundation of lists. So you could use lexical, global, dynamic scope, whatever you want. And that's how we organize it, rather than needing to make cursors and things like that. And the problem with cursors is that essentially you've, like when you have the big atom approach, you've essentially recreated the concept of namespaces, but like in a mm. poor man's way, when we have real namespaces. And you, where you would run into problems there is with things that need to be anonymous, because like how do you make an anonymous thing in a map? You have to gen sim something maybe, I don't know. So just just to clarify a little bit on that then, so what, what you're saying is you your one big atom is mostly for this like uh, dependency network, but it's not for everything in the application. Well, I think all the things, it, it, it forms, it emerges. The, the units of atomicness or whatever are emergent, meaning like yeah. you set that up. So you can have as many input cells as you want, and these are the what. These are basically the places that you can call swap on. Mm. Um, and then there's formulas okay. that are dependent on those, you know, derived state. 
And so like an input, you know, a number of input cells plus all the things that depend on them, that forms like one atomic unit that's sort of like a big atom, but that you don't need to have a map and address things via keys in the map. You can just use vars and address things as by evaluating their symbol. Okay, so you're always referring to the thing that is being updated, like the value that you see in front of you rather than some side thing. Yeah, and you're not looking things up in a database. You're operating on first-class objects rather than proxying that object into this giant database. Yeah. So how does um, so uh, remember when I remember when Ohm was announced and one of the biggest things that David Nolan pointed out is that you can actually do um, undo and redo sort of thing. So you can actually go back in the in the in the state. So does it translate similar uh, on on Hoplon as well or? Well. Um... Okay, so I have two things. First of all, yeah, you can do that in Hoplon. Like we have a tic-tac-toe game that implements undo in one line, you know, because it just, you just have a vector of states. So every time mm -hmm. the state changes, it puts it there and you can pop it and push it. And there's a cell. So the state is a formula cell, which is just the first item in this, yeah. you know, in this stack. But however, I should say though, that like in my actual work, all this stuff is useless yeah. because you know, I'm making business applications that have workflows, you know, yeah. and people's money is actually, you know, we are actually launching nukes all the time, you mm. know, those nukes being people's money. And so, like, you launch a nuke and then you press undo and the UI rewinds to the state before you launch the nuke, Moscow is still getting torched. <laughs> it's not helping yeah. you. You know, and like, and the central, the fundamental problem, I think, yeah. is that the state of the user's brain and understanding does not rewind when you press a button. So I think at the end of the day, you're always going to need a situation that's more like Git, where you make a reverting commit. And you always need, like, like when you change your password, right? A thing comes up saying, your password was changed successfully. Yeah. What happens when you undo that? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that one of the, one of the things when, when I saw the undo things, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, undo is basically like the user level things. I mean, okay, I typed something, I just want to undo. And it, it, it's... It's not it's not useful for applications where, as you say, everything is backed up by a business process. But um, it's it's useful for you know if I'm if I'm doing a document editing or something like uh, Photoshop, you know, you have this undo history where you can actually go back to the things. But but there, I think it's it's also uh, uh, I remember when Photoshop first came in and the initial versions, they also have the limit, like you have like seven or or ten things, and then you could only undo for five or ten, and then every time I I had to remember that oh. Shit, I need to I need to reset the number somehow, <laughs> and then they introduce another thing called snapshots. So you, every time you can have a snapshot, because it can become very unwieldy because you keep adding this state again and again and again, and you obviously don't want to go back to the original. So that kind of stupid. Yeah, but that 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 was a bit weird though, wasn't it? Because in the, in those environments, you had to put so much yeah. on the stack. It was probably hellish, yeah. you know. Whereas obviously it's a much lighter mm -hmm. enclosure. The other thing, the only thing that like. The problem, I guess, is that there's two there's two parts. I mean, obviously, we the, the the example people give is like the drawing applications, like you say, and that's well, the demo that people that David Nolan gives, yeah. for instance, is the drawing app where you can undo things, and that's not a business app. Mm. I get that, but the other thing is that like on a on a form, say if we're undoing form entry, which is a, another interesting example, is like let's say you have a form that has I don't know ten fields, you've really got a choice of either undo per okay if you're typing something in a in a field like a text field the browser supports undo in that in that environment 
Um, but if you've put something in one field, then put something in the next field, then put something in the next field, the only way the browser will support undo across all of those fields is by pressing the cancel button. So I guess there are small use cases yeah. where you might want to undo one or more of those inputs. Mm. But I don't know. It, it's, a bit, it's definitely an edge case. It's I an mean, edge it's, case it's and it's doable. To anyway. In Hoplon, just as it is in, you know, in any closure script application that because you're basically just saying, look, I just want to maintain the state of this thing somewhere, so just pop it onto a vector, mm -hmm. and off we go. Yeah, that's what okay. we do in like the 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 tic tac toe game, you know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. so so you you in in the spreadsheet model, there are formulas for each cells, and then a cell can update the other cell, or a formula in a cell can update the other cell, and so how do you handle the dependency between them? If I if I have a cell A, A one for example, to speak in in Excel parlance. So you have A1 and then you have B1 and then the formula in B1 actually updates A1 and then so it's basically a circular dependency. So how do you avoid that one? Yeah, that, that never really comes up. I mean, you can't do that in, in spreadsheets, in most spreadsheets mm -hmm. yeah. either, you know. Um, but like, but usually you don't want to program that way. So that's, that's one of the big things like Javelin isn't really FRP. Like, we, like when we first released it, we wrote FRP because that was the word. And like we had done all this research and we had read all these papers and all of them were like FRP. But then we like we didn't use all this FRP stuff. Like most of the time these FRP papers would end up like, how do you do Fibonacci in FRP? But like we don't want to do any of that. So yeah. Javelin is the layer for piping information, piping flowing state around. So it's like a data flow is what we call it now. Um, and so the idea is that all of your actual work happens in functions or whatever. And you can separate those out, you know, and just it's just the flow of state. Well, one one small example I think that I I, I saw in the early days from um, from the FRP crowd because I think the FRP crowd are also interested in all the signals and events and merging all those kind of things. So there's a bit of a like there's there's two parts to it. One part is like the spreadsheet bit, which says if I change the value in a1, you can tell that uh, VJ is doing an MBA now because he's so Excel, <laughs> such an Excel guru. You, know? uh, but you have to hit the cell in A1. So that means that the, that the, uh, so the value in A1 is changed. So the, the formula in B1, uh, which is like a calculation 10 times that value, that gets updated automatically. And that's all great. So that, that works in, 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 uh, in Javelin. The, the classic FRP example, I think, is where you're looking for a username in the database. So you, you start typing out the username and then letter by letter, you start to Stream the, yeah. look back on the server and see what, which, you know, which, which names are available. So, so do you have that kind, of, that kind of feature as well where you can like treat all the inputs as signals or is that, is that, is that bit, the bits that you're not really implementing? Well, like the, the, the terminology that we're most familiar with is behaviors and event streams. So I can never remember which one is the signal and which one isn't. But anyway, <laughs> behaviors are, are things that always have a value, and you could look at them at any time. And event streams are things yeah. that have instantaneous values. And we, we decided that we didn't want event streams at all. Like, we had no use for them. They weren't helpful in, in, the, in the conceptual model in any way. Because if something doesn't have a value at all times, that means that you have to have a callback to catch the thing and that now the order that those things happen in is important. Whereas with behaviors, the dependency determines the order. So 
it's not even something that's under your control. And the fact that it always has a value means that you can use all the things that you know, reference types are good for uh, to relate mm -hmm. to. So you could dereference it at any time, um, things like that. And if you need something that acts like an event stream, all you need to do is make a vector that contains one unique object, like a UUID, along with the payload. Mm -hmm. So for example, because uh, one of the properties of Javelin is that it will only reevaluate formulas when their inputs, like when their dependent cells, the cells they depend on, they change their values. So that was a thing okay. that didn't exist in any of the other FRP things that were out there, like flapjacks or whatever, because they all use JavaScript, and there's no like equality story for JavaScript. And that like polluted the entire thing from top to bottom. It's a super inefficient where you have to check everything from top to bottom. Yeah, and also it's crucial though. Like this once-only semantic is extremely important yeah. in order to be able to build robust programs. Like even if you know, it's not even about efficiency. It's about where you attach the side effects. Correctness, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. this will ensure yeah. that, like, the nukes are only launched once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, before... <laughs> Maybe we should just leave the nukes out of this... <laughs> I'm American. That's all we have. Yeah, I, know, I know you're American, but, you know, <laughs> you're frightening us now, Michelle, you know? So, be before okay, we... About, move, move. Why can't we launch koala bears? We're nice, peaceful Europeans. Yeah, launch, launch, launch koala, koala bears. Eh? Yeah, or kittens and, and... Okay, we're launching the koala bears. That's the, yeah, the kittens, kill, kill the yeah. kittens or whatever. That's I don't know. Kittens. I don't know if there are any cat aficionados oh in no. the audiences. Please don't uh, scream right now. Look, we're a vegetarian podcast. Exactly. Feature, so we're, okay? we're just launching Man, the vegetables. We may kill okay? cats, but we don't eat them. That, that's what... Uh, that's the idea. But, um, <laughs> We don't kill them yeah. either, okay? It's, it's, it's not happening. Let's, let's all okay, live really together in harmony kitten, with cats. No kittens were killed to produce this podcast. Let's, be, let's just be yeah. clear about so that. So before, before we move on to the next, <laughs> next topic, so, so do you see any, any reason to use or port Javelin into, into closure world? I mean, on, on JVM level things. You know, it's interesting. Um, I haven't found any. So there, there was a, recently uh, a, a request to add to Javelin uh, like a lazy evaluation semantic, meaning that you know, the, the formulas wouldn't update unless some, there was a watch on it or something like that. And um, so like, to me, that's like the kind of the world that you have on the server because you don't want to have a million things out there updating all the time. You, know? like, you can't afford that on a server that's heavily loaded. Uh, and what you end up with is like, if you don't dereference it, it doesn't compute it, right? But that's just calling a function. I mean, if yeah, you need to, yeah. if dereferencing the thing produces the value, you have just effectively called a function. And yeah. that's where I always end up back at. Like, we do have a Javelin port for closure. And yeah. I think the only place that it would be useful for me would be if I was making like a Java UI. Yeah, because yeah, in the UI, course. you really do have like persistent things that need to reactively update. But on a server, you can't afford that. Yeah, I mean, my question was related to, you know, whether, whether we can uh, build desktop applications. Well, not, not with Electron and all the crap. You know, I know I know everybody wants to write Electron these days and then bring JavaScript onto the desktop, but I was thinking, can we use Javelin as, as a backend or the model layer for, for uh, Swing applications or JavaFX or something like that? But yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, as you're pointing out, it's basically a function because you, you just want to call it and then get it updated. Um, so, but for UIs, it totally makes sense. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not on the server, though. But maybe the other part of the server story is where you want to do some rendering on the server side, uh, just to render out the UI at least. 
but I guess that's less less javeliny and more hoplony. Yeah, and it's also of like if that makes sense, it's of limited utility because we do have uh, you can pre-render hoplon, and it loads your thing in a you know Phantom JS or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that's good for SEO, for example. So you can do like the Google, you know, crawler thing. Yeah. Um, and it's good yeah. for like when the page first loads. So like have yeah. a splash screen or something. But in general, like you really want to be working, like you're making a program. And it's not like, you know, like imagine on a desktop, like a normal program, you know, you don't want to have like this pre-computed stuff that needs to be torn down. And, you know, yeah. you want to like do your computing as directly as possible because. Yeah. Okay. So we. Okay. Just one, one final thing uh, on the, on the Javelin thing we didn't discuss actually. Um, and then we're, we're running a little bit late, but who cares? It's all great stuff. Uh, is the, is the ability to use these lenses so you can have like much more, cause I think like the concept of having like a function, it's a, some sort of formula cell where you say this function is equal to that function. You also have these lenses. Can you talk about that a little bit just to kind of show that you have, let's say more arbitrarily complex features in, in Javelin than, than we might think just from a pure simple spreadsheet model. Sure. Yeah. And, and lenses, you know, the term, you know, maybe is not entirely correct, but, uh, uh -oh. <laughs> but basically the, <laughs> the Haskell is going to get upset. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I don't know which flavor of monoid it is, but, um, so in, in Javelin, like in a normal spreadsheet, you have input cells and formula cells. And the contract there is that an input cell can have any value you want, and at any time of the day or night, you can put a, a new value in there, and you can get the value out whenever you want. And the contract with the formula cell is that there is a constraint on the value of this that will be in this cell, and that constraint is expressed in terms of other cells and constants or whatever values you want. But the, the, the idea is that this is a rigid constraint, and you can guarantee that at no time will you be able to observe this guy in a state that is not consistent with this constraint. So if A is one... So it's like an acid-style thing yeah. almost. So if A is 1 and B is 2 and C is the formula A plus B, that thing will definitely have 3 in it. You'll never find it in some other state. So that means that like right. calling swap or reset on the formula cell makes no sense whatsoever and should cause an error, which it does. So, but what we implemented is like a very gen general form of lenses. Um, and the idea is that when you, you can give a request to the formula to update, say, I would like you to make your value this. And maybe that formula has some implementation that you've given to it that can update the relevant input cells to make it so. Hmm. So that's the Javelin form of a lens, which is, so, so you can create a lens from a formula expression plus a callback. Okay. So the formula expression is what the value will always be. That's like a solid constraint. Hmm. The callback right. is something that attempts to update things in the world such that it will achieve the result that you want, but it might not actually work that way. Do you, have a, do you have a kind of concrete example yeah, of so that? Yeah, so one place where we use lenses all the time is suppose I have a component that is going to, um, say, accept uh, like a form component, right, that has maybe your name and your email address or something. And maybe if the person already exists in the database, you want to pre-populate it with the current values. 
and you want to have constraints on what those values might be so you don't let them type in something bad. And you want that to come from outside mm -hmm. of the component. So you don't want the component to need to know about how that works. So it would be great if you could pass them a cell that will mm -hmm. only that has a constraint on which values it can ever contain and might have a default thing, but that you could also call swap on it to try and set the value, right? Okay. So that's like a use case. So you pass it, you construct this formula, which is saying the formula would be like, look in the database, you know, would, would, would be like the, the default value. And this callback would be able to do validation and stuff like that. And then it would set, it would go into the mutable thing, the input cell and update that such that the name in the form input would actually update. Super useful. Ah, okay. Actually, that's really cool because uh, some, someone asked me about that at this closure meetup and I'd forgotten how it worked. So, so now you've given me a great answer. So, so yes. That uh, guy. Jan, I think he was called. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, what he said. But I'm really, that's one of the things that I'm kind of like, I don't know, the, the, one of the things that I enjoy that came out of it was like how simple the, the lens implementation and like how, how general it ended up being. Hmm. It really yeah. kind of makes me happy. Yeah, because actually it's quite interesting that uh, that, that, that part of it is uh, definitely something which you don't see anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 that aspect of that, yeah, do something to me, do something outside of the scope. You, you said it yeah. better. Okay. <laughs> but, but we get it. I mean, we can do something yeah. to you. That, that's what you mean. <laughs> yeah, it's like, here's a request to do something. Yeah. And yeah. then your internal implementation might make it happen or might not. Yeah. Does, the, does the best it can. Okay. Yeah. So you've got a loop basically that's yeah. optional. It might or might not result in a change. Okay. Yeah, that's really so, cool. Yeah, great so stuff. So we uh, we looked at the the UI, which is uh, Hoplon and uh, the Javelin that that you use on the client side to to store the state and make sure that uh, that reflects the thing. And of course, the, the the other piece of the puzzle is talking to the backend, right? I mean, how, how do you how do you send this data over to the server? Because obviously you need you need something in the backend that's interacting with the database or, yeah, managing all these things. So we have the Castra library for it, right? Uh, can can you give us a quick overview of what what Castra is and and how how does it fit into the the the, the three pillar uh, thing? Yeah, so Castra is uh, I don't know the buzzwords would be like RPC, CQRS, yeah. those yeah. types of things. And the idea of it is that. In the client, you can call a function that gets evaluated on the server. And this function is uh, for side effects only. Mm -hmm. And so the, when you call the function, it doesn't return data, doesn't return a result. Uh, okay. The result ends up in a Javelin cell. And how it factors into, C, uh, how it relates to CQRS is uh, with CQRS, you have like a, a separation between command and query. So yes. I send a command to the back end to um, you know, change my password, say. And actually, that's a bad example, but to change my birthday. You know? yep. um, and then the, the query is, what is my birthday? Or what is my user information that might contain my birthday? Mm. Uh, so and decoupling the two things gives a lot of benefits in how you can uh, organize the front end. Because take, for example, a login form right? Mm -hmm. uh, basically any interaction with the back end, you normally have two like kind of uh, two concerns that are at odds with each other. When you log in, when you fill in the login form and it talks to the back end and you've successfully given your password, 
that login form doesn't know anything about what the application needs to do once you're logged in, nor should it. It should only yes. know about you know, how to get you logged in and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. So you have that concern. But also, like, suppose your password isn't correct. It needs to show you an error message or something. So it needs to know about how to deal with errors locally, but, mm -hmm. it needs to know, but it shouldn't know anything about how to deal with like, successful state changes because yeah. those changes are at a totally different level of the, your application. And yeah. so what we do is when you call one of these uh, RPC stubs on the client, it returns a promise, which mm -hmm. will, which will uh, when, you, uh, when the promise is fulfilled, it contains information about uh, the status of you know, the request, meaning like if there were errors, it returns them, validation errors, connection or whatever. Um, but additionally, when the thing, when the AJAX request actually completes, uh, rather than returning it to the, returning the result to the, to the caller, meaning like this query, uh, yeah. it gets put into a cell. Okay. And that so, cell... Um, so, so the, if, I, if I have a big form that um, our, basically I'm thinking about a business application, right? So I'm, I'm filling in data to, to, uh, to book a flight or something, uh, it doesn't matter. Something like that. So I'm, I'm adding all this information and I'm clicking on, okay, send this data back to the server. And uh, I have another view where it shows a number of flight reservations. So that needs to be updated when the server gets the uh, successful reservation, for example. So is it like an, what is the sequence of events there? Is it an optimistic update that locally it changes or is it actually going back to the server and then then only the, the cell gets updated if, if the backend is successful? And how does the error handling work in that case? Usually it's a combination of those two approaches depending on you know, how your application is organized. Because I could see, I could see there be like, I could see there being two uh, stem cells, we call it. Yeah. <laughs> um, like one of them showing like, you know, all the flights that you care about maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and it's probably gonna be paginated, you know? Mm -hmm. So maybe the current page. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. And there's also, um, you know, like the purchasing workflow. So maybe yeah. you have information about, you know, the current, like your current place in the workflow. And yeah. so there, there might be like a bunch of different steps in this workflow to book a flight. Mm -hmm. And so those would be a bunch of RPC calls probably okay. that all are related to the same query. Meaning this okay. query is what's my current workflow state. Yeah. And so every time you make an RPC call, that does some stuff in the back end for side effects only. And mm -hmm. then the same query function is run and that value gets put into the cell. Right. Um, so. Okay. So the RPC has got two parts then. It's got like this, essentially this part where normally with an RPC, one expects the, the RPC to, to take a, a, a call and then return a result. But what you're saying is this one takes a command and then you tell it where the result is going to end up in some cell somewhere. And then you can evaluate that cell how you wish. Yeah, and it's not even, I don't really think of it as a result because, okay. so you might have like, let's say you have five RPC functions that implement this workflow. Um, there would be one single query function that is returned for each, every single one of those. Meaning the client, uh, when that Ajax call uh, completes, it gets the result of evaluating the query expression, not the RPC expression. Okay. So how are the two how are the two things linked together then? Well, decoupling them is huge because you have uh, so like for this workflow thing, there's a query on your database 
that will return all the information about the state of that workflow, right? And that's completely decoupled from the things that are performing side effects mutating the database, which is very mm -hmm. powerful. So in, in Castor, when you define your RPC functions on the back end, uh, they're like, you know how in Clojure you can make preconditions and postconditions? Yeah, yeah. So we extended uh -huh. that so you can make a query condition, which specifies the expression, the query expression, to return to the, to the client. Okay. Um, and you can also have preconditions, which are, um, which are performed kind of like closure preconditions, but only when it's an HTTP endpoint. Meaning um, that like if one RPC function on the back end calls another, it doesn't evaluate those. So you don't need to mock any state or anything. Ah, okay. I didn't get that either, but okay. <laughs> I'd written one of those. I'd actually, I'd actually written one of those, and someone asked me what the difference between the normal pre and the the, the Castro pre was, and I couldn't for for the life of me remember. But okay, that's that's good to know. Yeah, so it's only when the HTTP endpoint is called. Well, it also okay, has like cool. a crucial other purpose. Uh, separating that out is that uh, you could, um, if you send uh, validation metadata saying like operate in validation mode it only performs the preconditions, but never the body. And this... Right. Yeah, okay. so like what we do at Adzerk... A bit, like a bit like a fancy head. Exactly, yeah. And like at Adzerk, what we do a lot, like for pretty much every form is we have, you know, once you submit the form, you're like, while you type, it's validating everything. And we validate on the back end mostly. Like we have very little front end validation because it's like so, it's so solid to do it this way that it just like, we get like, yeah, yeah, it's it's really effective for okay. simplifying how your code works. So, what is what is it, it it what is it piggybacking on? So, Castro uses a ring, or or what what is the backend based on? Yeah, it's implemented as a ring middleware. So okay, so we just need to uh, just add the library and then start writing RPC functions, and then we can call them from this one. Okay, so um, another other question that 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 we were that we that I was interested in is the whole server push thing. So, how how does how can you can you do that, or if do you think it's a good idea or not? You know, <laughs> server push. Yeah, stuff? you can uh, you can do it. I, I, like my my needs, you know, for the type of business applications I write, we have very little use for that. You know, most of the applications we write doesn't have a lot of interaction between users. Yeah. So in that situation, polling makes a lot more sense, okay. you know, because so. But but, but yeah, do, it should do, be possible to do it, of course. So do you think what is what is the best use cases? I mean, of course, I mean every every framework can be used or abused to fit into every kind of application that you can build. But uh, do you think Hoplon um, um, is something that you want to pick up if you want to build, for example, something like Slack? You know, um, lots of users, lots of clients, and and. I mean, I think Slack is, would be a good, I mean, because that's like a, basically any application that you open and you use and you have workflows. You yeah. know, if, if you expect someone, if you expect to, that all your customers are going to be there for less than 30 seconds mm -hmm. uh, and you expect to make your living that way, don't yeah. pick Hoplon, you know? Yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. better applications and then uh, heavy, or not heavy, but rich applications. And and before before we close on on Castro, I just want to ask one more thing. Like, so how does the especially when when you're building these rich internet applications, you know, using using a um, rich Rias or whatever, a SPAS or single page applications, um, the, the one of the questions that keeps coming back is, is about the sessions and 
you know, maintaining the session on the server and logging out and these kind of things. So how does that work in, in, in Hoplong? So usually the way, we are, the way we organize the applications for deployment is we'll deploy the front end, the Hoplon part, yeah. all to a CDN because you just end up with HTML file and some JavaScript and whatever. So we put that on a CDN and then we use cores to talk yeah. to the Castro backend, which is just a RPC, you know, like just a HTTP endpoint. Um, mm. So cores makes things a little bit difficult sometimes, like mm. with cookies and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, so we have... Uh, we have another implementation that, like, I just needed to ship a thing, and I had so many problems with cores in different browsers that I made a local storage-based implementation. Okay. Uh, but, but the general approach is you just have an identifier that you don't need to store a lot of information in the session. You just need to store, you know, basically the identity of the user. That's the only thing that needs to per persist. We encrypt it, send it over to the client, store it on the client. They send it back with every request along with like the CSRF tokens and whatnot that are automatically yeah. generated by Castra, yeah. um, it just sends an additional, mm -hmm. all right. so an additional because, thing. Because Castra is based on Ring, I can use all sorts of Ring middleware on it, right? I mean, any, any kind of middleware that I want to put in, or do you think there is any, yep. anything that you should be aware of or careful about? No, not at all. And in fact, uh, Castra doesn't care about URIs at all. It'll accept any post. It just cares about the body because it's an RPC call. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. So you can mount it anywhere. What we do with that kind of thing, by the way, is we often use, we use a CDN, but we, we subdomain the CDN uh, onto our own domain. So it looks like from a course perspective that you're on the same domain. So if you use, if you, you know, with CloudFront, that kind of thing, you can put, make your bucket as a, as a subdomain of your domain rather than having all this cause crap because cause seems like a hell. Well, it's not, it doesn't seem like a hell. It is a total <laughs> hell. You know, it's like, it's just ridiculous, especially for, it's, it's fine for when you really have to trust something, but mostly it's just an impediment to good deployment practices as far as I can tell. Rant over, okay. <laughs> Bam. Um, right, so <laughs> the other thing was what we were talking about was um, the actual... Uh, I think this is something which comes up a lot with the the modern applications. Is this how do you transfer like payloads? Because is your payload like a REST payload, and you have to go to ten different servers to get this payload, or does the RPC give you a nice closure or closure script uh, payload that you can rehydrate easily on both sides? Yeah, that's the key. One of the most key aspects of Castra is that when you call the function in the client, it's as if you were calling a closure function. There's no, you know, you give it closure data, and what ends up in the cell is closure data. And you can do the same thing in the REPL enclosure when you're working and testing and, and, and all of that. So it's essentially just like a function call. OK, so you can get back any kind of collection or data structure or whatever yep. you want. And you can, you know, it uses transit in the middle. So if you want to extend that, you can send record types over, you know, whatever you want. Right, right. We, we've discussed that in the reader uh, program, which I'm sure you've listened to many times, <laughs> yeah. Michelle, by now. So just refer back to, to the reader episode, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that's a great explanation, actually, Michelle. I think, uh, and, and, and as Vijay says, each of these things can be taken 
independently or obviously a multiplier effect if you use them all together. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to the final topic. Now uh, we want to discuss about what's your opinion about other frameworks. So what do you think about React and React-based ClojureScript uh, libraries and, and what, what lessons that, that we can take from each other? And Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I mean, I've, I've been studying it lately a lot more than I have been for a while. And uh, so I've been making some applications with RUM uh, okay. past few weeks and uh, with Reagent. Yeah. Um, exploring things. And like the, the, the thing that I'm most interested in, like the overarching goal is the component story. Yeah, yeah, especially with, with Reframe. I mean, that, when we were discussing the web components thing, I think Reframe are a reagent-based uh, thing. That they also want to um, build something similar, like different components. And, and yeah, it seems like a common kind of goal. Yeah, yeah and like the, the specific kind of things that mm. we want to support is like, for example, in Hoplon, there's this, uh, this macro, uh, DefLM Plus, which allows you to make a component where you declare attributes and you can accept children. It acts like a function. You could call it like a function. Uh, specify attributes, which are, you know, like keyword value pairs and, you know, children are like if you nest things inside. But the idea of it is that this component is a first class DOM element thing. So suppose I have a component that is some kind of list component where it has its mm -hmm. own internal structure and deep inside of it, it has like a container area where children are going to go. And when you add a child, it's going to be wrapped in all this stuff to make it like a proper child of this custom yeah. element, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so what we want to, to have is like a real first class implementation would provide where I have a function over here that constructs one of these things. I pass yeah. it to another function, which can add children, mm -hmm. add attributes, whatever. And normally what happens is if this thing is like 20 divs or whatever, and like the container is like deep inside, you end mm -hmm. up just adding the children to the outermost div. It's useless. It's a leaky abstraction. Mm. So that's the kind of thing that's like our overarching goal because what we want to achieve at the end of the day is a system where you can construct your more complex things from simpler things full mm -hmm. fidelity and then sure. combine yeah. those with uh you know like the uh state machines and javelin cells you know to yeah. assemble applications with zero architecting is like our own so what's what's your opinion on virtual DOM? Because I, I know that Hoplon is using jQuery, so it's not doing any virtual DOM op optimization as far as I, 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 I know. Am I wrong? Or do you have there's any plans no, for... There's no virtual DOM as such. I mean, it does have some aspects of the virtual DOM. Um, but uh, like, for example, um, Hoplon does allocation a, a little bit differently. Hmm. Uh, so... Like how do you, uh, with Hoplon, you leverage static allocation as much as possible. It's very declarative. Uh, but sometimes you don't know at compile time how many elements a certain thing will have, like a, a table, say. Right? Mm -hmm. So that depends on what comes back from the database. And the way Hoplon yeah. handles this is kind of like, a, I don't know, we saw this thing in, in, in common lists called a fill vector. Uh, I don't know if it's exactly that, but it's similar. It's basically you have a pool 
which represents the high watermark of how many things there were. Yeah. And you never destroy them. Uh, you have this pool, and but the uh, properties of each of these elements in the pool are uh, formulas on the nth element in this vector of data. Okay. Meaning like, you know, if you have your, your flights, like you were saying before, you know, those are coming from a database. And so you, you might have n flights in, in view. And so there's n little objects. And each one of them is uh, constructed by a constructor that exposes uh, a, a formula for the nth item in, that, in this cell. Okay. And so like that cell can grow and shrink, you know, the items in there. So maybe there's 40 of them now, and maybe there's only 10 of them at, mm. you know, t plus one. Uh, so the mm -hmm. 11th item now has null in its cell, right? And so what Hoplon provides is like, it, it provides some, some things for managing this. And so the, the, the TPL macros, we call them, uh, it removes those guys from the DOM, but doesn't destroy them. It just puts them into a pool. So oh, there's only 10 okay. items in the, in the table, yeah. but the other ones are still alive. They're just, they're still wired up and everything. They're just in this pool. And so when your thing grows again, they go back into the DOM and now the thing isn't nil anymore. Now it's the, you know, the 11th it item. It has the value, yeah, yeah. Right, and so you don't need to, you don't need to explicitly, explicitly handle, handle a life cycle there because everything just automatically works because you've simplified it because you don't deallocate anything. So you don't need yeah. to like rebuild state um, so, like, those are the kinds of things okay. that I think virtual DOMs interfere with because you're not dealing with a direct reference to the thing. You're dealing with, like, an intermediary. Yeah, there, there is a different abstraction. Well, how, how, do you, how, do you stop it, how do you stop it getting out of control or in terms of uh, memory and stuff like that? Like, in, you know, our, we've made some, like, really large applications now. Like, the AdZerk one is pretty huge uh, in terms of, like, functionality, the number of screens and so on. Uh, and it's totally not a problem at all because, like, humans can't handle more than a certain number of things at any given time. And, you know, so, like, allocating some divs, like, allocating, you know, 100 divs, like, a lot of times, because of the way it works, you can reuse those divs. So, like, mm -hmm. a lot of times we can reuse the same table for different purposes. Uh, if it has the same structure, um, it's just a matter of changing what's in this vector of data, right? and mm. all the things update. Okay. So in practice, you never run into that kind of problem, but. Okay. So it's like a mini, it's like a, not a, not a virtual DOM. It's like a virtual, like a mini DOM, like a virtual set of elements. Yeah. Or a pool of elements. Yeah. Like, like you said, DOM, DOM element pooling basically. Yeah, and you can make it lazy a lot of times. I mean, there, there are constructs that allow you to delay initialization of these things until the, the, the vector becomes non-nil, which allows you to like, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not good, but it allows you to not have to load everything at once. Okay. And, and what's the, what is the story about native Hoplon? Um, like nowadays it's, it's everybody wants to write closure script or, or just writing JavaScript and run it everywhere, I think. It's like um, Java of the 90s, I think, you know, <laughs> write once and run somewhere, you know. Right. <laughs> so JavaScript is now everywhere, all the way from the server to uh, the, the, the mobile applications that people are building with JavaScript. And do you think uh, Hoplon can be used for the native applications, native mobile applications, for example? Yeah, I've personally made, um, made a number of applications that are 
you know, in the, the App Store or whatever with Trigger I.O. in the past and Cordova and stuff. And uh, I haven't done any of that, anything in that area for like past couple years. But um, like I, my view is that like I, I bet you HTML containers are just going to get better and better. Um, so like I think the the benefit like I've been reading a bunch of stuff from like game engines and stuff about like native engines versus HTML5. Yeah. And I don't know. It seems like the it might be that the future is not with you know native native shims, but might be mm. with just HTML. I don't know. Yeah, it could be, because I know that with every iteration, I know they, Canvas yeah, they, they remove more and more restrictions from the WebKit, uh, for example, uh, on, on iOS. So the, the web view becomes way more, way more powerful than the previous one. Because previous versions, they, they had a, a lot of problems because the, um, the touch events had a specific delay when, when right. you use it on, on, the, on the app. And that made all the wrapper applications behave like shit. Yeah, the 300 millisecond thing. Exactly. <laughs> Once it is gone, things have started getting, certainly started getting better. So, but that's... Um, yeah, also, I guess the WebGL is also the other big thing, isn't it? Because now they have WebGL on there, so you can actually program on the web as well as on the native uh, graphics yeah. stuff. I don't know if, I mean, I guess Hoplon has not really got a good WebGL story, or is that, am I wrong there? Uh, I haven't done any WebGL stuff, but like I've done mm. SVG stuff, and mm. that works right, fine, right. No, works awesome. Uh, Canvas, done some of that too, works fine, yeah. you know. Mm. Yeah. So it is pretty much, pretty yeah, much decoupled right. from the whatever kind of UI you want to use. Yeah, I mean, SVG was especially like well-suited, I think. Uh, Alan and I made some games, and it was like an interesting process because we offloaded all the stuff that you would normally need like a super quick render loop for. Yeah. Like yeah. the stuff that React usually says like, oh, look at all this perf, you could do, you know, 60 frames per second. But um, like generally what we did was we found, you know, we used SVG animations, transforms, things like that, and there's like tons of like highly optimized JavaScript libraries that you offload that stuff onto, and, you know, you actually only need to update your state and some trajectories and stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. D did, you, did you make a game to launch the nukes? <laughs> yeah, it was actually Missile Command. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Okay, we got the theme, that's for sure. Okay. Well, that's brilliant. I think that's really fantastic. I, I don't know if you've got uh, anything else uh, that we want to we wanna talk about, Misha, or anything else that... That you guys are uh, up to. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Vijay. I have, one, I have one, one, yeah. well, one last point. The basic question is: so how how do we how do people hop onto Hoplon bus? Um, <laughs> oh, I like it. I like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, just uh, Hoplon.io is the website. That's it. Okay. Of course, you, you guys and are on IRC Slack. and Slack, and yeah, the, yep. there is a Slack channel, and and of course, um, uh, your your code is all everywhere on GitHub, and people can follow you on Twitter, I suppose. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't tweet very much, but, uh, but I do have a Twitter, so. Okay. But yeah, the Slack channel yeah. is the best place. There's a lot of really friendly people in there from all over the world, so like pretty much 24-7 support, so. Yeah, oh, that's sweet. Yeah, I think it's uh, actually, I've, I've uh, been in that Slack channel as well. I think it's always, uh, it's like the warm pool of the <laughs> Slack team, you know. It's, it's like everybody's nice, sitting yeah. in a jacuzzi. I know. Hmm. It's a spa, yeah. It's like it's 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 quite literally. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Okay, 
yeah, but it's it's really nice. And uh, also the other thing that uh, that I've done as well in the past is looked at the examples that you've got for uh, for Hoplon and Javelin and Castra, and using those examples uh, to get started is a very good way of uh, bootstrapping yourself and into the technology. I think. Yeah, we have like thirty demo applications or something. A lot. Okay. Yeah, it's really. So good. that was. Um, uh... I mean, it was very nice talking to you, Misha. I mean, especially, you know, we are very grateful for you, for you to, you've been very kind and, and spent a lot of time with us. I know pre-show discussion also extended quite long. This is the longest show exactly. in our history, by the way, <laughs> by a mile. So you've done something right there, Misha. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm having a great time. And of course, it's, it's, uh, our thanks goes to Alan as well. You know, both of you guys have been making amazing stuff. So uh, we hope, you know, you guys are going to continue with these things and, more and more people will, um, I'm going to use the pun again, hop on to Hoplon. Uh, and <laughs> and, uh, and we're going to have much more fun. So thanks a lot. And maybe you've got a new slogan there. Hop for on you, to Michelle. Hoplon. Yeah. Please go ahead. Please use it. And every time you, every, for every. If, <laughs> We've got a trademark. Exactly. For, 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 for every impression, you can send me two euros. Okay. That's, that's, you guys are in that business, right? You know, you know how this works. Yeah, yeah, we'll work out a deal. We'll, we'll work something out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, I mean, unfortunately, I, I couldn't do much with Hoplon. But uh, after this discussion, I'm, re I'm really curious because I, I built most of the web applications that are used in, in very closed uh, environments, so to speak, like business applications. And I've been trying a bit with uh, Reagent and Reframe. And uh, of course, I, I would love to try it out. And I'll, I'll, I'll again, hop on to uh, Hoplon and onto your, your channel. And... Um, yeah, I, 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 it's, it seems to be very, very interesting, by the way. So thanks a lot. And um, any, any last words for us? Oh, by the way, Emacs are some other crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a Vi guy. Ah, oh, yeah. God. Okay, that's, that's uh, not bad, not bad, actually. I think it has been tradition I, I, for, for one episode to ask Man, I, I, I spent like a year <laughs> and a half with Emacs and Space Max. And that stuff, and I'm like, I tried to like it so bad, but I, I couldn't, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on Space Max, but so how friendly is Hoplon development with Emacs now? Is, is it okay? Can I just uh, plug in? Because I am assuming I just use boot and then uh, just just hook into it. Okay. But that's probably a different thing. Yeah, our workflow is a lot more uh, kind of like Figwheel style than REPL style, like my own personal one. Okay. Uh, just because of the way like cells and spreadsheets work. You don't need to do the same kind of debugging as like I normally would in a closure program where you're calling functions a lot. Uh, okay. So. Okay, but we'll certainly do another episode about build tools and everything and boot, and uh, yeah, we'd be very happy to have you or Alan on the show again. So we have lots of things to discuss because you keep producing amazing libraries, and <laughs> and we we need to yeah, we need yeah, to talk yeah. about this stuff. That's fantastic. Okay, uh, thanks a lot, Misha and um, Ray. Um, and of course, we, we promised we're going to discuss about uh, concurrency and async, uh, but uh, we, we, we'll certainly pick it up in the, in the next episode. Uh, we'll, we'll discuss. That's the nice thing about async, see, it's exactly. a promise that is durable <laughs> in the future. We don't yeah. say when, okay, we just, say, we just say it's in the future. So it will be next time. We did the sure. request, we, we did put the request into the channel. So as, long, as soon as the we other side is going to pick channel. it up, we know we're going to publish it. Yeah. So that's... It's in the yeah, buffer exactly. moment. So... Um, that's it, I think. That's it for today. Or uh, any any quick uh, updates, Ray? 
just to just to say at the end, we will post all the show notes and all the links to Hoplon. It's fairly easy, I think, hoplon.io. Uh, we'll post it onto deafen.audio, onto SoundCloud, all this kind of stuff. Um, but I think, no, just like you, Vijay, thanks very much again to Misha. It was totally fantastic. Uh, great conversation hope everyone uh, who listens to the show has as much fun listening to it as we had talking about it and it's, it's really good it's a great technology I'm a massive enthusiast for it so I think let's you know come on guys get on board the Hoplon yeah. story hop on hop on yes. to Hoplon oh, hop on to Hoplon <laughs> I'm going to use yeah. it now <laughs> and uh, so just just uh, so that's that's uh, one thing just one final quick credit again to Pizzeri for the intro and outro music uh, Melon Hamburger, go and support him on SoundCloud, he's doing a great job. PTZERY. Okay, thanks very much. And uh, bye bye, VJ. Bye bye, Ray. Bye bye, Misha. Bye bye, everyone.